All right, we're in a series called Faithful. Uh, this is finishing up today. Hopefully the series has been a blessing to you. It certainly has been to me as I prepared it and shared it. Uh, today is when life happens, and we've all experienced that. All right, I'd like to start with talking about conversion and deconversion experiences. Uh, most of you are Jesus followers, so you had a conversion experience. Maybe at some point in your life you had a deconversion experience. Maybe somebody here or watching is thinking about deconverting. Uh, some famous people have done that recently, some preachers of big churches. And um, it's always amazing to me, the, both, of, both of those, but the, especially deconversion stories. Because from my perspective, Christianity is a relationship, a love relationship. God loves me and I love him back. And uh, once you've experienced that, why would you want to not, you know, I, I've been married 45 years, I have this love relationship with my wife, I don't want that to end, why would I want that to end? So why would you want that, you know, that love relationship with God to end? But some people do, and we can talk about one of the big reasons people do that, but we all had conversion, most of us conversion experience, maybe as a child, maybe it was gradual, for some people it was really dramatic, like... Um, Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. Um, so, it's always interesting, but especially the deconversion. And it's usually based on, well, both sometimes, based on something that bad happens in our lives. All right? We just sang about bad things happening in our lives. So, two general reactions. You can get religion, so to speak. It'll drive you on your knees and you cry out to God for help in those difficult situations, or you say, okay, where's God in all this? Usually the question is kind of like this. If God is good, why is there so much injustice, pain, and suffering, whatever words you want to use, in the world? And so, since I see all this pain and suffering, um, it can't be a God, or not a God that I want to serve. Now, interesting thing about this, sometimes people make this argument about other people. So, you know, these horrible tragedy where these, I think it was 19 children were just shot. So, a good God wouldn't let that happen. Didn't happen to me, but he wouldn't let it happen to them. So, I'm going to say, God, no thanks, but no thanks. But sometimes it's personal. Now, let me just, I'm going to ask you a simple question. We're going to do a little logic here. Is that a good reason to get rid of faith? Because there's pain, injustice, and suffering in the world. Some people think so. Most of us don't. So I ask the, I'm going to ask the question, what makes the difference? Why do people respond to negative circumstances with greater faith and some people get rid of their faith? Now again, is that a good reason? I put this on your outline. That doesn't prove God doesn't exist. Here's all the proofs. Suffering proves that a God that doesn't allow suffering doesn't exist. Now that makes sense, right? If I believe God doesn't allow suffering, then suffering would, would say that God doesn't exist. But nowhere in Christianity are we teaching or learning <laughs> that that's the truth. We don't Worship, we don't serve a God that doesn't allow suffering. Kind of silly, actually. But as believers, as Christians, as Jesus followers, it's even worse. In reality, don't we as Christians believe 
in a God who allowed the worst possible thing to happen to the best possible person. Jesus. <laughs> That's the foundation of our faith. So it's foolish to think, well, I don't, can't believe in a God that allows pain and suffering because he allowed pain and suffering to his most precious only son. Why? Because he loves us. So that's where we're going today. A couple of minutes here for review. We've been starting out saying that Jesus called all of us for 2,000 years has been to follow him. All right? Follow me, watch what I do, watch what I say, how I react, and do likewise, imitate, right? That's the call to all of us. But the church over the years had felt that that was too demanding, too difficult. Most people aren't going to do that. So let's make it, dumb it down, make it as easy as possible. And we'll say, okay, just believe that Jesus was God's son. He lived a perfect life, died, rose from the dead. You trust, trust your, your sins to him and you go, go to heaven when you die. We call it fire insurance, don't we? All right? But that's what was, isn't what Jesus taught. Now, before we get there, though, there is a belief component of Christianity. And I haven't mentioned that through this whole series, so I want to take a couple of minutes and mention that. To enter a relationship with God, you have to believe in that God. You have to have some knowledge of that God. One of the places that Scripture puts it pretty clearly is Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It says, God saved you, that's entered into that relationship with God, by His grace. That's giving us something we don't deserve. And it, but we receive it when we believe it, right? Uh, you can't take credit for it. It's a gift. Now, if I offer you a gift, you can either take it or not. If you don't believe it, you don't believe I'm really going to give it to you, you're going to say no. I think you're going to pull it back when I reach for it, whatever. But if I believe it, then I receive it. And it's the same thing with a personal relationship with God. So we call it salvation. Salvation is not a reward for good things. We have done. We can't boast about it. So what's happened in Christianity, we've gotten it backwards. We said, you do all this, you know, do this, go to church, read your Bible, pray, and do all this stuff. Then eventually, God will accept you into this relationship. Then once you're in the relationship, you don't have to do anything. You've got your fire insurance. Go ahead and live your life any way you want. But that's not the, what Jesus taught. He said, come follow me even before you believe. In fact, all of us probably followed somewhat before we believed as we're receiving this knowledge. But then at that point of conversion, accepting the gift, then the following continues after that. So that's what we've been talking about. And we've been asking these questions, what would I do? What would you do? What would I do? What would I change? What would I stop? What would I start? if I was absolutely 100% confident that God is with me. I thought of that expression, we would charge the gates of hell with a squirt gun. We'd charge it without any kind of gun, wouldn't we? If we had believed it, absolutely. So, they had squirt guns at, at Smithsburg Days last week. That's why I was thinking about squirt guns. And maybe this year too. And we asked, what the fuels or what the development of that active faith, that kind of faith, that extraordinary faith, that... Faith in the midst of all kinds of tragedy. How do we get that? Or, or can we get that? Or what do we do to get that? And we've all met people like that, haven't we? Their lives seem to fall apart and their faith just gets stronger. And I'm thinking, wow, I don't know if mine would in those circumstances. So 
how did those people get there? Or maybe that's where you are. How did you get there? Another question is, what are the essential ingredients, components of that kind of faith? And I'm giving you some suggested uh, in this series. I've given you four. I'm going to give you the fifth one today. First one we talked about was application teaching. Uh, reading this book or listening to a preacher like me or whatever, <clears throat> it's not enough to just get the information. In fact, in, in any field of life, it's not enough to get the information. It's to use the information, right? To apply the information. So, yeah, I'm Suggest that I love my enemies, and I love my enemies, and then, oh, it really works. My life got better, or whatever it might be. All right, so actually do it. <laughs> Application. Uh, personal ministry, putting yourself out there, usually out of your comfort zone. But I got to thinking about this week is initially it's usually out of your comfort zone, but often you find it is in your giftedness after you try it. My perfect example is me at 17. Last thing I thought I was gifted for was being a preacher. My sister's sitting there nodding her head because she knew me, all right? But I've been a pastor for 45 years, 44. I've been married 45, all right? And so evidently it was in my giftedness. Um, God knew that. I didn't know that. So involved in personal ministry. Then we talked about, and this was really fun, providential relationships. People shared about how God just dropped somebody in their lives at just the right time to help them through some circumstance or change the direction of their lives, etc. So just be aware of those and watch out for those because you can reject them. Then last week we talked about private disciplines. And as I was thinking about this this week, I got to thinking, well, <clears throat> what we're talking about is spending time with God. And again, back to this love relationship. I love spending time with my wife. <laughs> You don't have to force me to spend time with my wife. I don't have to force myself to spend time with my wife. So why is it that we have to with God? So hopefully it starts with an ought, ought to, but becomes a want to. And there's different personal spiritual disciplines. We talked about that last week. And there's others besides. So today, we're going to wrap this up with what I'm going to call pivotal circumstances or defining moments. Now, we all have these in our lives. Some of them are good. Like when I got married, pivotal circumstances, right? When my first, well, all my children, but that first one, those of you who are parents, when that first child comes along, it's just like, God, you're giving me the responsibility to take care of this living thing? And of course, we've had four, and then the grandkids come along, it's a lot more fun then, but anyway, uh, it's still pivotal, right? Um, getting that great job, uh, retirement, pivotal circumstances. But there's also negative, you know, maybe you've got, had, a, had a divorce. Maybe you, your spouse has died. Maybe one of your children, in our case, uh, our daughter-in-law and our future son-in-law died. These are huge, pivotal circumstances. Um, health issue, major health issue, huge, pivotal circumstance. So it, may, it reminded me of something uh, C.S. Lewis wrote, and I've shared this before. Pretty famous statement. God whispers to us in our pleasure. Hey, when life's going pretty good, yeah, God, we're good. And we just kind of go on with life, right? <laughs> Sometimes he, 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 he speaks to our conscience, kind of nudges us. And we talked about that. But God wants to get your and my attention. What's he do? He allows pain. I say causes it, but he allows pain come into our lives. 
Then we're on our knees, right? Then we're crying out to God. Then we're sure to spend time in prayer, um, even though we might skip it when life is good. It is the megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So we can pretty much be fine without God until we're not, right? When life isn't so good. Life isn't going like we would want. So it kind of creates this, I'm going to call it this, appears to be an unsolvable tension. Good God, bad stuff happens. Now, we see it as an unsolvable tension, but it's fascinating that writers of the New Testament, they didn't see it as a, as a, as a contradiction or whatever. In fact, we're going to look at something a guy by the name of James wrote. Now, James was Jesus' half-brother. And in the Gospels, we don't hear anything about James. So as long as Jesus was alive, somehow James wasn't convinced he was any big deal. Like you and I would be about our brothers anyway. But after that, we, we find James at the beginning of the early church. And James is a leader in the early church. So he transformed to being this Jesus, major Jesus follower. Anyway, he wrote this letter. We call it the book of James. It's in the Bible. And it's fascinating because he starts off, we rewrite verses, the Bible's written in verses, it was a letter. So he just says, basically he says, hi, and then what we call verse 2, we're going to jump in there. And what he's going to talk about is trials, difficulties, persecution, whatever you want to call it, are tests. That's what they are. That's the way you and I need to look at them. They're tests. So here it goes. Verse 2. He said, hi, greetings. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, all right, consider an opportunity. Opportunities are good. Opportunity for what? For great joy. Wait a minute, wait, you're talking about troubles, right? (laughs) One translation said, the greatest joy. So if you want to have the greatest joy in life, <laughs> the potential's in your troubles. That's what he's saying. That doesn't kind of make sense, does it? Well, he explains it, fortunately for us. For you know that when your faith is tested, troubles equal tests, right? When your faith is trusted, your endurance or your patience or your perseverance, with lots of different words translated there, has a chance to grow. What's well, good for those things to grow, right? So he says, let it grow and grow and grow. Trouble after trouble after trouble. For when endurance is fully developed, or when you're a mature faith, that amazing faith, you'll be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Somewhere along the line, we think Christianity should be wrinkle-free. It's kind of crazy. But you know, these times of testing are what produce, let me use the word character, Character is so critical. We see so many people failing in character, moral issues, religious leaders, political leaders, all kinds of people. The test comes and they fail. So, put on your outline this. We don't know what we actually believe. Oh, we say we believe lots of things. But we don't know what we actually believe until what we claim to believe is tested. Then we really discover, or we're in the process of discovering. So, for example, there's a verse that says, all things work together for good. So something bad happens, and do you say, oh, well, God's going to bring good out of this? Or, or our, we lose our faith. 
right? Well, then I really didn't believe it. I said I did, but I didn't really believe it. A pastor from a big church out west coast puts it this way. A faith that can't be tested can't be trusted. It's kind of like a muscle, okay? Can I pick that up? Let's try something else. Can I pick that piano up? Oh, maybe I think I can, but I don't know until what? I actually try and pick it up. I was picking up something the other day, and I told my wife, this is the limit. (laughs) Any heavier, I can't pick it up. I knew my limit. Well, the same thing with our faith. Now, the fascinating thing, again, reading the Gospels is this. Jesus, it appears, literally manufactured pivotal circumstances. (laughs) Um, One we talked about a couple weeks ago was Jesus teaching, and it's all day long, and... and, uh, it gets late, and the apostles say, send them away. They need to get something for the eat. And Jesus could have said, yeah, just send them away. But what did he do? He said, no, no, no. That's not necessary. You feed them. What is he doing? He's creating a pivotal circumstance. He's creating an opportunity for their faith to grow. And, of course, Jesus performs this miracle, and their faith grew. Uh, I thought about Lazarus. Jesus had this good friend, Lazarus, and he got sick, and they sent word to Jesus, and Jesus has been healing people, and they assumed he'd come and heal him, and Jesus said, no, we don't need to go. He told his disciples, we don't have to go for a while. So he waited a few days. Lazarus dies. He said it was going to be fine, and the disciples thought he was going to, you know, still be alive when they show up. And they show up, and he's been dead for several days, and he's been buried, and and uh, his sister comes out and said, I, I, I knew if you were here... Uh, before he died, you could have healed him. Of course, now it's too late, right? So again, why didn't Jesus come earlier? It seems to me that he's creating this pivotal circumstances because what does he do? He said, uh, well, basically, you a little faith. You think death's a problem for me? <laughs> no problem. And he raises us from the dead. So we get to the last day of Jesus' life. He's with his disciples and he's teaching them cramming this stuff in, and he basically told them, hey guys, I'm leaving. I'm basically, told him, he told them, literally told them he's going to die. They didn't really believe him, because Messiah isn't going to die. And then he says specifically, uh, I'm going to pick this up in, in Luke chapter 22, he says specifically to Simon, but he's talking to all his disciples, Simon, Simon, pay attention, listen. Satan has demanded, not I thought that was a weird word that Satan could demand anything of God. But anyway, Satan has demanded to have you all to sift you like wheat. So Satan's trying to get them all, not just just, um, Simon. He's wanting to crush them, right? Now notice what he says next. But Jesus is talking to all the disciples, specifically Peter. I have pleaded in prayer for you. Isn't that a wonderful statement? I believe God pleads in prayer for you and I. But he did for Peter because he knew what was coming. He said, Simon, give him a heads up. Your faith, I'm praying your faith's not going to fail. Now, did Jesus' prayer get answered? I've asked you this question before in his prayer in the garden. Did it get answered? Well, it's kind of a trick question, yes and no. Anyway, so when you have repented, which means he had to have failed to have something to repent for. So Jesus knew he was going to fail. But he's praying that he wouldn't fail. But what, what was he really praying for? He said, that when you've repented and turned to me again, then you'll be able to strengthen your brothers. Did that prayer get answered? 
fact, we're going to start a study of the book of Acts next week, and that's the beginning of the early church, and we're going to see how that prayer dramatically was answered. But in this case, Peter says, oh, no problem. <laughs> no problem, right? You ever tell God no problem? Lord, I am ready to go to prison with you and even to die with you. No, yeah. Nothing's going to cause me to leave you. And I can imagine Jesus shaking his head and just saying, uh, Peter, um, got some bad news. <laughs> let me tell you. Let me tell you something. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny me, not one time, not two times. How specific was Jesus? Three times. But you even knew me. You're going to be afraid of a little teenage girl. So, did Peter pass the test? No, he failed it three times. After the cross, did he pass that test? No. No disciples after the cross. All left. But then two months later, and I'll just give you a taste of where we're going to go in the next couple of weeks. Two months later, Peter and John heal this guy at the temple, and they get, they get themselves in trouble. They get arrested. And then the next morning, they're brought before, uh, this is in Acts chapter 4, the council. And the members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. For the, why were they amazed? Well, they were just kind of ordinary guys with no special training in Scripture. And they just healed somebody. Notice this phrase. They also recognize these men who had been with Jesus. Do people recognize that you and I have been with Jesus? We'll talk about that in the next couple of weeks. Where did that faith come from? Failed test, failed test, failed test, failed test. Ah, pass the test. I thought about it this way, pruning a tree. When I, we were kids, my, my dad had fruit trees in our little yard. Apple tree and fruit, what other kind of thing, a peach tree, whatever. And my dad would cut some of the branches back. We call it pruning. As a kid, I'm thinking, Dad, don't do that. The bigger the tree, more fruit, right? That's what kid thinks. But no, 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 no. If you notice, especially the peach trees around here, they're not much bigger than this. They keep cutting them back. Why? Because you don't want all the growth to go into the branches and the leaves. You want the growth to go into the fruit. And so God prunes us by negative pivotal experiences so that we can have bigger, juicier faith rather than fruit. So, again, we're going to start a series on Acts next week. So, pivotal, pivotal circumstances. What makes a difference? What draws somebody to Jesus and what causes somebody to push Jesus away? I'll give you three quick things. First one, what we believe. What we believe. Because we don't always believe the right thing, right stuff, do we? I put on your outline. We assume what's not true. We claim what's not promised. There's a wing of the church that preaches prosperity. We call it prosperity gospel. The greater your faith, the greater your wealth. Where do they get that from? You find that in the New Testament? Jesus wealthy, disciples wealthy? No, no, that's Old Testament. All right? Abraham and Job, God blessed them, they were rich. <clears throat> is that a promise for you and I? I don't believe it is. So we try and claim what's not promised. We assume that's not true. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. <clears throat> Disciples came to Jesus and said, oh, this blind guy, <laughs> who sinned? Him or his parents? I believe, they believed, that either it was the sin of the parents or his sin that caused him to be blind. And Jesus said, wait, 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 wait. 
It's not because of their, his sins or his parents' sins. You got wrong thinking, wrong beliefs. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. So, got to make sure you got the right beliefs. Secondly, who you listen to? Who you hang out with? This is huge. You need the right people around you. That's what I love about small group. I get in small group, have people to care about me, love me. I care about them and love them. We share our lives together. And when they need a word of encouragement, I can give it. And when I need a word of encouragement, they can give it to me. You need to surround yourself with people like that. You can also put, surround yourself with people that are naysayers, right? Remember Job? They said, oh, just curse God and die. That was a lot of encouragement, right? So be careful who you surround yourself with. And thirdly, how we frame it, how you see it. Jesus, I put on your outline. Jesus helped the disciples reshape their thinking around their suffering. Sometimes we say it this way, with an etern- uh, perspective of eternity. You know, we're just passing through this life. Bad things are going to happen. It's preparation for eternity. That's what's really important. Another way to think about it, Jesus, I'm going to see the way you see. I'm going to see life the way you see it. At first, all things work together for good. I don't see it. Help me see it like you see it. I believe that is a promise from you. <clears throat> Something that I put on the outline that hopefully will be helpful to you is this. If you and I can spot, spot God in it, no matter how terrible it is, how tragic it is, how painful it is, if I can spot God in it, I am much more likely, you are much more likely to maintain faith through it. You, you're not, it's not going to be a deconversion experience for you. It's going to be a faith-growing experience for you and I. See, again, after the cross, every disciple failed. Every disciple gave up their faith. Every disciple stopped believing. They deconverted, if you will. But then three days later, after the resurrection, they were reconverted, if you will. Their faith was restored. Again, on that last night of Jesus' life, he's telling them all this stuff, and I'm thinking, if I was there, man, that would be a big downer, wouldn't it? Uh, they're going to kill me, and I'm leaving. But notice what he said. Just a couple of verses, and we'll be finished. Here's what Jesus said. Okay. That's going to happen, sure. But I've told you all this for a reason. That you may have peace in me. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute, Jesus. You're leaving. Well, he said he was coming back, but they didn't really believe that part, I don't think. Um, but if they did, they would have peace. Okay. Bad things happening. Good, good result. Here on earth, you'll have, you and I, are going to have many trials and sorrows. Expect it, folks. I don't know why we don't. Expect it. Jesus told us to expect it. Fallen world, sinful world, evil, bad things happen. Expect it. But, okay, I know it's going to happen, but take heart or be encouraged. Why? Why? Because I, Jesus, have overcome the world. I've conquered sin and death. And everything else is small potatoes compared to that. And they did, didn't they? We're going to study that next couple of weeks, Book of Acts. They did. And because they did, we have. That's why we're here. That generation, the next generation of the church, the next generation, 
and we're the present generation of the church. Now, the interesting thing about <clears throat> pivotal circumstances is you don't get to choose them. Well, you can choose to get married, I guess, and who to marry, but especially those negative ones. We don't get to choose them. You know, private spiritual disciplines, I can choose to do that. But pivotal circumstances, I can't. But they come. Jesus arranges them. The question is, how do we respond? Does our faith grow, or do we push God away? I got to thinking about, you know, the tragedy in Texas, and, and I mentioned and prayed in my small group a couple of weeks ago that it seems like the church is losing. We're losing the battle. I say the war, but then I got to thinking, what? I read the end of the book. You read the end of the book? We win, right? We win. So don't be discouraged. Jesus, I said, I've overcome the world. So your take-home is basically a summary of what we talked about, all right? Expose yourself to application teaching. Hopefully you get it here. Find it other places too. Serve in a personal ministry. Great here at the church, but you could be outside the church. Benefit from providential relationships. You can not benefit from them. Choose not to. Commit yourself to private disciplines. I specifically said 30 days. So we're one week in. If you miss a day, that's okay. And then be prepared, be aware, excuse me, of God and those pivotal, especially those negative pivotal circumstances. These things will grow your faith. You want a stronger faith? I know I do. Let me pray with you and let you go. Father God, thank you. We thank you for worship. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for your word. We thank you for these teachings that have been so encouraging to me, and I pray to all of us. <clears throat> Grow our faith, God. And we realize it's going to involve difficulty. But we want a greater faith, a greater determination to believe. Um, I pray for any folks that are kind of following along and never haven't stepped across that line yet, haven't become a Jesus, a committed Jesus follower. I pray today's the day. You understand. That makes sense. I need to receive that grace gift of salvation, eternal life with you, Jesus. For most of us are Jesus followers already, God, and maybe we're struggling. Maybe some stuff we don't like is happening, and it, it seems to be weakening our faith. I pray that it would strengthen our faith. Um, and do people see Jesus in us, as, the, as this council did in Peter and John? I pray that they do. We thank you for all your blessings. And it's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen.